This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country podcast from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with Helen Mark. When I got the chance of uh, an early morning ride out in the spring sunshine on the horses from Craig and Gillen stables here in the southern uplands of Scotland, well, I, I, I couldn't resist it. It's the most glorious day to be out with bright, fresh air. The sky is blue and spring is emerging all round me. When you get things like the new grass and the brackens pushing their way up through the desiccated forms of grass that was there from last year's growth, there is, there's just something extra in the air, I think. Here I am back in the stables with Mark Gibson. And these stables are part of the Craig and Gillen estate, your estate, Mark. And the life force that is within these stables really is part of the bigger story of what's happened here on the estate. Shall we wander around a little bit, Mark? Mm -hmm. And you can tell me more about how you have brought life back to Craig and Gillen estate. I've come with Mark out on to... It's the eastern edge of the estate. And I see why you brought me here, because we can look back across the crags, the other side of the valley to the house, and the clock tower I can see of the stables. Yep. How lovely. I think it's a, a magical place. When I came, it didn't entirely feel like that, because it felt slightly sad, partly because everything had been allowed to fall down. Um, the buildings, the fences were on the ground... But the other reason was that um, people were very much kept out of the place. So at every entrance there were great spiky metal gates um, with coils of rusting barbed wire over the top and sort of rusting keep-out signs, which made it feel very sad. But at the same time it had a sort of sleeping beauty feel about it and you could see um, what was underneath. Although there was a lot that I could love about it, it was scary not just the physical state, but Dom Ellington um, had developed a, a slightly sort of wild, scary reputation. And that's the nearest um, village to you? That's the nearest village. Um, was a mining community, and then in the mid-70s, the last of them closed down, so there was suddenly very high unemployment and everything that goes with that. But I soon discovered that that fear was totally groundless and it's the most fantastic, very strong, very spirited community and through becoming a part of it, it's certainly given me my motivation and the energy to really try to make this into um, a thriving place and to contribute as a catalyst for a new future for the, for the valley. What acreage are we talking about altogether? Um, on Craig and Gillen, there's um, just about exactly 3,000 acres. Um, I knew that we had to restore the landscape. Um, it had been badly scarred by coal mining and iron furnaces. I think nobody from outside thought of Craig and Gillen or Dom Ellington as somewhere they might want to go. So it's very important to 
change that perception. And so we built miles of footpaths to bring people in to, to see what a place it is. A big change there from the keep out signs. You um, set up the farm, you run Blackface yep. Sheep. Yes. Yes, and that was a wh- crucial step. It was, and on the first day that I was here, we began the two year process of converting it to organic status. Um, so it's now fully organic. And you had local people coming to work for you. You were creating jobs. You were yes. tackling difficult issues of you know, the unemployment in the area, but also the vandalism, um, perhaps the way the estate was viewed you know, because of the keep-out signs. There was actually very little vandalism. Um, the one problem that there was was in the spring, like now, the kids used to light grass fires um, on a huge scale, uh, about 250 times each spring when the fire brigade were called out. I could just imagine them sweeping through the, the dry the dry <laughs> grass cover that we've got. Mm-hmm. My goodness, and so what, how did you deal with that? Well, I just knew we had to. It had been going on for about 100 years, and everybody said you'll never be able to stop it. But I knew that all the plans we had, both for protecting wildlife, but also creating a new future, It was incompatible with people coming and finding the place ablaze. I suddenly thought um, or remembered we'd had a a boy of about 14 doing a week's work experience and I thought that he might be able to help. So I drove around his house, which is in the middle of the village, and um, said, if I give you the use of a quad bike and I'll pay you if you'll do a fire patrol. And he said, sure and from that day no more fires because he knew all the people who might be doing it um, <laughs> that was a good move and a, a combination of that we continued the fire patrol got involved with both the primary and secondary schools and talked to small groups of kids and I learnt that if you explained what it does to wildlife that really registered and they cared And there was a feature done recently on the American news channel CNN which looked at what was happening here in this area and the Wild Spring Festival and said that it was one of the reasons why they are citing Scotland as the number one destination to visit in 2013. I hadn't heard that and I think that was just wonderful. Night has fallen but we have a moon, a half moon, which is shining so brightly it actually casts shadows round us. So here I am on the edge of Craigengillan Estate at the Scottish Dark Skies Observatory. This is a very special place. It's the only such dark sky park, which is set in uh, Galloway Forest Park, in the whole of the United Kingdom. So it's a real treat to be here, particularly tonight when the skies are so clear. And I'm here with the observatory manager, Robert Ince, who's going to guide me across this unbound universe that is above our heads. <laughs> it is brilliant. Look at that. We're in how how seldom we get to see stars so well that we you know we have proper darkness around us. No, indeed. On a night like tonight, when we've got the, the moon shining brightly, yet it's still dark enough that we can see the, the stars twinkling through the skylight. And this is such a unique place um, for people to visit. It was recently set up, wasn't it, Robert? That's right. I've really been open to the public since the beginning of this calendar year. It is a, a really unique, wonderful 
place and it's a, a magical place to visit. Let's look up for a while, shall we? Um, I'm afraid my knowledge is limited to Orion's Belt, which is over there, and the plough, which is behind well, me you're there. you're doing very well at that, because <laughs> it, I always say, if you can find those two main constellations, Orion normally uh, in the south, going into the southwest at this time of year, and also uh, if you're turning away from Orion, you'll see looking north, you've got uh, the plough. And of course, if you can find the plough, you can find Polaris, because one of the beautiful things about the plough, uh, the end two stars that make up the uh, edge of the bowl of the plough, always point north. So if you can find those two stars, you can find north, you can find your way around the sky, you can navigate with the, with the stars like they've been doing since ancient times to see the gloriousness of stars you need dark skies and that is what we don't have enough of light pollution is a real problem so how has it come to happen here in this part of southwest scotland it's one of those uh, serendipitous type things that uh, southwest scotland has um, got a very large area of forestry and farmland and therefore we haven't got a huge density of towns and villages and that means we have uh, very low light pollution in this area and uh, 2009, the area was given the International Dark Sky uh, Association's award of the gold level. They did light uh, measurements and uh, they found that the clarity of the sky immediately above this area is pretty much good as anywhere in the world. So this observatory was built. It's set on the, on the top of this, uh, this hill, a wooden-clad building, but with the characteristic dome... That you have. Yes, very much. So. And there are telescopes set up on the roof. Indeed, so, yes. can we have a little look? Yes, let's by all means. The observatory is included in the UNESCO a biosphere, yes. isn't it? It meets the whole idea of, of what that is about. It's about the natural environment and man working together to benefit both. Exactly. Now, obviously, from an, an observatory point of view, I'm very much interested in the night sky and the, the night element of the biosphere. But there's also uh, the animal element of it, not just looking up to the sky. There's actually the nocturnal creatures that are involved. And, of course, not many people realise that more than half of the species on the globe are actually nocturnal. So the biosphere is here to protect and warrant, if you like, not just the starlight above, but also the creatures below. Uh, let's go in the main dome here. So we've got the big five-metre dome behind. Is the classical thing you'd see from a... It's like something out of a science fiction film. It always makes me smile. <laughs> because uh, when you look at a dome like this, I mean, it makes me think of the James Bond moment. It's the... Oh, oh Mr Bond, I expect you to die. <laughs> As you see, the things that start to move. We've got a, a lovely great big 20-inch telescope sitting on the pier central of the dome. And what magnification are we talking about? Just to get a sense of the scale of it. You can talk about magnification, but you can also talk about light gathering, because when you consider uh, your eye, anything you perceive of a night sky is through the pupil, and that's something like five millimetre diameter at best. Well, we're using a telescope as a light bucket, as a way of grabbing more light, more photons, and putting them, feeding them down our eyes. So really, it's all about capturing extra light, which you can then use to see fainter things at low magnification, or magnify up and still be able to see. Get the detail. So exactly. So the whole point about this is you've got a 510 millimetre mirror, which is putting all its light down your five millimetre pupil. So think of the, the increased 10,000 amount of light. So the views you can see, for example, you can see Jupiter is apparently something like the size of your fist at arm's length. Let me just kick her into life. The telescope itself rotate and point to different parts of the sky but of course there's no point doing that if you're inside a structure so we can open the roof
slides open and our first view we get is of our bright silver half coin moon <laughs> and then the stars that surround it appear the telescope is it's almost like two large oil cans together is that's about the size of the structure that is pointing up at the roof but we get the opportunity to just look through a small eyepiece and we just move the telescope up so we can actually put it onto the moon and we'll give you a nice view through the moon gosh i've got quite a sense of anticipation about this <gasps> oh, you can see the surface of the moon from here in galloway forest park i can see the craters and the the mountain ranges and the former oceans that were it is fantastic it it i could almost reach out and touch the texture of that moon when i'm looking through this telescope i have never in my life had such an experience that is astounding and that reaction is exactly why i do this job i've headed south down past the beautiful Loch Ken, this glorious long strip of water, down into Castle Douglas. This is known as the food town, and I've come here in a way for two reasons. First, to meet Wilma Finlay, who's with me now as we walk down the main street. But also, we're looking at this idea that this part of southwest Scotland is celebrating wildlife yes. in the springtime. And you're the chairman of the Wild Spring Festival. That's right. So the two hang together so well, food and wildlife as well. Um, but the, the Wild Spring Festival, it's going from the beginning of April through to the end of May. And we've got over 100 events. Um, some will be focused primarily on children, but there'll be some that will be more exclusive and kind of a weekend dedicated with a ranger or foraging for wild, for wild food or whatever. People interacting with, with the natural environment. Yes. Local communities and tourists. Now... The food element, because you're involved with food yourself, you're involved yes. in the production of ice cream with Cream O'Galloway. Yes. But we've come to this town mm -hmm. because we want to have a look at what's seasonal. That's right. So we're coming to this uh, shop today just to taste some of the fantastic things that are on offer here that are unique. This is Thistle Be Scrumptious and it's a, a small delicatessen but they specialise in local and Scottish produce. So we'll go in, Wilma. Hello. Hello. Oh, lovely aroma of coffee. That's the first thing you get. But this shop is owned by Clint Burgess and Helen Crony. And you set it up because you really wanted to celebrate local produce in this, in this small town. That's right. Um, we felt that Dumfries and Galloway had such a fantastic larder to offer that we wanted to try and find a one-stop shop where we could pull that larder together. So for tourists, and particularly for locals, there was one place where you could try and find most of the produce locally. Yeah, and it's worked so well. I know you've sort of clinched quite a few awards because of this shop, but you really want to think about uh, seasonal produce, don't you, Clint? And here we are in the springtime. What do you love to see arrive? We do some fantastic honeys during the spring. Some local fish, smoked fish, that always comes cheeses. in. Cheeses. Yep. I'm just looking at what you've set down on the table in front of us. As you say, we've got the fish and meats uh, and the preserves. Um, well, oh, this is one of yours, Wilma, from Cream of Galloway, is that it? Is, that's it indeed. I wasn't expecting that. I mean, Dumfries and Galloway is a fantastic dairy um, region. 
Um, and sadly, we don't have anything like the amount of cheesemakers that we used to have even 40 years ago. But there's, there's much more coming in, many more starting, and we've just started. So this is a soft cheese with a crushed black pepper through it and oatmeal. Also with us here in the shop, we've got Mark Williams. And Mark, you go out into the countryside through all the seasons, but here, here now in the springtime, to gather food for us to eat. That's right. I'm a forager, really. Um, but I don't sell anything that I pick. I, I like to teach people about it. Um, so I take out chefs, and I have chefs uh, desperate to come to Galloway just because there's so much amazing produce growing wild. Um, and really, I mean, the stuff we've got in front of us here, mm. I just picked uh, yesterday and a beautiful bit of woodland full of snowdrops, and, uh, you know, we've made up these little plates of food. And uh, it, you've got them in little red mushrooms. Yeah, these are called scarlet elf cups, and they're extraordinary little fungus that come out uh, during the winter and early spring. And, uh, yeah, they're like a little red cup, really, and you could just imagine a little elf drinking out of them, but they're actually <laughs> a delicious mushroom, and you could imagine top chefs go absolutely crazy for these. So what I've done here is a little demonstration of how they can look as a little canopy, so I've filled them with some other mushrooms and some deep-fried lichen. Uh, so these yellowy ones are called velvet shank. So have a little try. So these little, these little cups have got velvet shank, lichen, and sep powder in them with a little bit of wild winter greenery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having to take a breath because it's it's, uh, it's quite an unusual thought of eating this. But anyway, here we go. Mm. Just as I chew through that, I'm looking down at this basket and the greenery you've got here, that's a very distinctive spring leaf, that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, this is probably one that more people are getting familiar with now as foraging gets more popular. This is wild garlic or ramsons. Well, you maybe need to clear your palate first, but if you have a little nibble on that, it's a lovely hit of mm. uh, basically garlic and spring onion flavour. But I have this wonderful nutty flavour in yeah, my yeah. mouth from eating those yeah. mushrooms. Yeah, how is that tasting? Mm, absolutely tremendous. Yeah, yeah. and um, that, that is basically raw mushroom and lichen sushi that you're mm. eating. And now the full power of garlic, all foraged from the wild all picked, in this particular yeah, area. I'm never leaving. <laughs> Just to the west of Castle Douglas um, is Belly Mac Hill Farm. I'm surrounded by you know, small farm buildings and the fields have got the sheep and the lambs. There are hens and ducks about the place and the occasional roar from the cockerel. Um, this farm is set on what's called the Galloway Red Kite Trail and it's a really good example of how local communities, local people have connected with the wildlife and have used it to their advantage in that it creates an immense amount of money for the local economy, the entire trail, but in particular this place where I am now, the feeding station. And here's Callum Murray now of the RSPB. Hello, Callum. Hello there. Lovely to meet you. And yourself. The birds are beginning to, to congregate here at the feeding station. We still have about 15 or 20 minutes before the feed begins, but they're contacting each other. That whistling call is attracting yet more red kites in. It just goes to show you how social these birds are. So that, in turn, means that more and more kites will, will start to, to group here. And then, of course, when the farmer steps into the field at two o'clock, that's when the whole spectacle unfolds. Callum Murray and I were out on the viewing platform, and in front of us we have the feeding stations, and already a few of these red kites are gathering, circling in the air, perching on the ash trees in the distance there, just waiting for the moment their, um, their dinner arrives. And there are already people gathered here waiting to watch it along with us, uh, tourists coming into the area. 
The wingspan is vast, isn't it? It's about what across a... We often say to visitors about five to five and a half foot. That's about 1.5 to 1.75 metres. But a very small body, small head, and then the distinctive forked tail, which as we are watching them circling and gliding above our heads, they use a bit like a rudder to steer themselves about. It's impossible to count because of the constant movement. But we're probably talking about maybe now 40, 45 red kites have gathered. The sky is milling with these silhouettes of, of raptors above our heads. Oh, and there's more coming in from the horizon here to our right. This concentration of, of raptors, how does that affect general farming life or people who are running shooting estates is there a little bit of unrest between you know the the bird lover and the the landowner certainly seeing so many here together um, many people are often easily mistaken for thinking that red kites are so populous that in fact they need to be controlled but they couldn't be further from the truth even though kites are doing successfully in the uk now thanks to a 23 year long project in releasing them these birds are still nationally rare um, we need to make sure that, that that point is addressed and that people are aware that red kites are such a social animal and that's why we see so many gathering together. But in actual fact, they're not causing any real problem for these people at all. So they don't pick off pheasant chicks, they don't um, take lambs or, or lamb afterbirth? They'll certainly pick off afterbirth and if farmers are, are lambing in fields, then often they do come down and clean up those fields after the lambs are born. But a lamb itself is simply too thick-skinned for a red kite to grasp and kill and then tear open. And as far as pheasants, uh, pheasant chicks are concerned, or, or game bird chicks, by the time those chicks or poults are placed into pens outdoors, really they're too large for a red kite to be capable of killing. So they're not really guilty of that act either. This is, uh, this is Anne Johnston. Uh, Anne is the farmer that owns and manages Bellymac Hill Farm. So She's it's got run... two... A metal buckets. That's right. The buckets contain the meat that she'll be providing to the red kites. Um, it's never any more than a couple of bucketfuls of meat that's provided here. We provide advice to the farmer to try and keep feeding to a minimum, really. We don't want to overfeed these birds. Uh, indeed, they're wild animals. We want to make sure they remain wild. They're coming closer and closer down because they know that Anne is walking across the field with the buckets to the feeding tables, which are a mere, what, 20 feet away from where we are now. How many would you say we've got now, Callum? Obviously very difficult to say, but we've got about 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. I reckon we've got about 70 or 80 kites here just now, <laughs> maybe slightly more than that. Now, Anne is throwing some entrails or bits of meat across the grass. Oh, and down comes the bird, swoops down just in an instant. She's scattering like handfuls of corn and then the kite swoops down and picks this morsel of, of, of meat up from the ground. I can hear the beat of the wing, the swoop, the rustle of feather. Oh my goodness, I could almost reach out and touch them. Right in, right in front of us, swoop past this gathering of people here on the viewing platform. They don't land. They pick up this tiny cube of meat from the ground, pick it up in their, in their beak, and off they go. And we have feathers and talons and beaks and a mass of bird life all around us. These magnificent raptors. In terms of benefits that they bring to the area, is it possible to assess that? 
We have a visitor feedback questionnaire on the Galloway Kite Trail, which we ask some visitors to take away with them. And over the years, we've managed to, um, of that feedback, we've managed to assess uh, a spend in the area, a minimum spend of something like £4 million, which is money coming to Dumfries and Galloway specifically because of these red kites. £4 million is enough money to bring in, on average every year, about 15 full-time equivalent jobs. So these, these birds are actually creating work in this area. And last, in the last three years, we've found it being something like 20 full-time equivalent jobs being generated as a result of the spend by visitors to this area. It just goes to show you, a little bit of nature-based tourism, like the Galloway Kite Trail, can really benefit an area um, to, to a point where it not only benefits the wildlife, but it actually benefits the people in the area as well.